optical illusions are interesting and they can trick us into seeing things which are not actually there. Now, some people's response to this amazing miracle that Jesus did at the wedding in Cana is that it was an illusion. It didn't really happen. That what really happened was either that Jesus told the servants to dilute the remaining wine that was left to make it go further, or that it was only the cup of wine that the steward tasted that was actually wine, and the rest of it wasn't wine at all. But looking at the passage, there's so much detail there that it's impossible to think that this was an illusion. We'll think about it a bit more, but we'll see that it really was Jesus at work, the Lord of creation, as we sang in our first hymn, being bigger than nature. We're going to look at each of the people in turn, and we're going to start by thinking about Mary. Now, if I said to you, when you had friends for dinner, what is your worst ever story of a dinner party or having friends to a meal? What is the worst thing that has ever happened to you when you've had friends over for dinner and something's gone wrong? Any, sto- any ideas? Any stories that people want to tell us? Kevin, what's yours? I've had a big um, barbecue, lots of people around. I've run out of barbecue gas. Oops! <laughs> That's quite a boo-boo, isn't it? Putting on a barbecue, having lots of people there and running out of gas. David, what's yours? My oven stopped working on Christmas Eve. Oh, the oven stopped working on Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's a bit of a... That's a nasty one, isn't it? Katerina? I eat plate ones. Oh, oh dear. Heated plates burning a large ring on the wooden table. Any other dinner party disasters? Jackie? soup in a blender and forgetting to put the lid on and the starter ending up all over the kitchen walls. <laughs> all sorts of stories that we could tell about uh, dinner parties going wrong and us feeling really embarrassed. Now Mary knew that at this wedding the wine running out was the most embarrassing a disastrous thing that could happen to the bridegroom uh, and his family. Jesus' time in his society, weddings weren't just sort of a day. They lasted for a whole week. And it wasn't just immediate friends and family who were invited. The whole of the village community uh, expected to be there The whole village community expected to come and go for a whole week and expected to be fed and given wine whenever they chose to turn up. And their society was a bit like some Asian cultures today. It was very much a shame culture. So something like the wine running out 
was a major, major catastrophe, and that family would feel shame and dishonor in their community for years and years and years. It was even possible that the bride's family could sue the bridegroom's family for not putting on a good enough reception, for not providing enough for the wedding party. And so Mary knew that this was a disaster. Now, if we think about Mary at that time, Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry. And uh, if we think about the the New Testament, we haven't heard any mention of Joseph at all since Jesus was 12 years old and decided to stay at the temple in Jerusalem. And so it's likely that by this time, Mary has been a widow for a long time. And so it's likely that she's learned to rely on Jesus as her first son for all that she needed. Uh, And so when she says to him, they've run out of wine, she's maybe saying that as a mother who's used to depending upon her oldest son for all that she needs. And yet, Jesus responds to her in a bit of a sharp way, or at least it seems sharp to us, because he says, Woman, what's that to you and me? In other words, he's saying to her, what do you expect me to do about it? It's none of my business. Now, that seems a bit sort of curt, doesn't it? To call her woman and then to respond to her like that. We don't have any equivalent of that uh, in our language of addressing somebody as woman. I think the nearest we can get to it is to uh, think of the royal family. We're not going to think about Prince Philip's events this week. (laughs) Uh, Enough said about that. There have been some cracking jokes about that. But anyway, uh, think about Prince Charles and Prince Andrew and Princess Anne and Prince Edward. Whenever they are in public, they have to call the Queen ma'am, just like you and I would have to when we met her. They're only allowed to call her mum or mummy or whatever else when they're in private. And that's the sort of thing that's going on here with Jesus and Mary. That the way he addresses her implies distance. And it seems as though what he's doing to her is separating himself from her. And he's now saying to her, Mary... You're used to being able to rely on me as your son. You are used to me being there for you. But the time has come when I can't do that any longer. From now on, I have to be getting on with the ministry that my father has called me to. And so he's creating some distance between him and her. He's saying to her, that she can no longer expect him to be there to meet her every need to be relied upon. She can no longer manipulate him into doing what she wants him to do because his focus has shifted from his family onto the mission that God has given him to do. And he tells her that his hour has not yet come 
That seems a bit of a strange thing to say. But he's looking to that time when he is going to die and rise again. He's looking to that time when all that his father has called him to do will be fulfilled in his death and his resurrection. So he's saying to Mary, I have to separate myself from you now and I have to get on with what it is that my father has called me to do. So he's not being rude as such. He's uh, setting up a new relationship with her. Now, maybe Mary was upset when he spoke to her like that. John doesn't tell us what uh, she felt. But instead, he shows us that uh, Mary's response was to say, do whatever he tells you. So she has understood what Jesus is saying to her. She has understood that uh, she can no longer rely on him as her human son. But what she is saying is that she wants to trust him as a disciple, as a follower. She wants to trust all that God is going to do through him. And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know if you noticed um, about how much wine was involved. The six stone water jars held a huge amount of water. We're thinking of 180 gallons here. That's huge, isn't it? How long would it take us to drink 180 gallons of wine? What state might we be in if we did it? It doesn't bear thinking about This water was meant for ceremonial use. It was meant for cleansing and purification. So the expectation would have been that when everybody arrived at the reception, they would have had their feet washed. Before they ate, they would have fulfilled all the Jewish requirements in law of washing your hands. They would have fulfilled the other Jewish law requirements of washing their hands between courses. So this water was meant to purify them in God's presence. And Jesus turns that water into wine. Because what he's saying is that as a result of his ministry, as a result of his life and his death and his resurrection that's to come, God is transforming the world. He is transforming our relationships with him. Because from this moment on, relationship with God is no longer going to be about whether we wash our feet when we should. It's no longer going to be about whether we wash our hands when we should. From this point onwards, relationship with God is going to be about his love and his grace. And that love and that grace isn't just given in a a measly watering can. It's given in an amount that we can't possibly imagine. And so the servants do exactly as Jesus tells tells them to. They fill up the water jars and they take that water to the steward. The steward would have been something like the master of ceremonies. He might have been hired, especially for this day. 
Uh, He was in charge of everything that went on. And he tasted that water that the servants took him and was amazed because it wasn't just sort of five pounds a bottle Tesco's special. It was more like a thousand pound Chateau Neuf du Pape. That's the sort of wine that we're talking about. We're not just talking about plonk that you might buy uh, when you haven't got much money. We're talking about the most amazing wine that you can possibly think of. Now, the, the steward doesn't know what's happened. He doesn't know that this wine that he's tasting had been water. Only the servants and the disciples and Jesus know what's happened. But what does amaze the the steward is that traditionally you give out the best wine first and then when everybody's had a little bit too much and can no longer tell the good wine from the cheap wine, then they go to the cheap wine. That's what would normally happen, so the steward thinks. So he's amazed that having run out of wine, the wine that he now has is even better than the wine that they served at first. And so we see that Jesus' love, his grace, his abundance, is not measly, it's not second rate. It's more than we can imagine, and it's better than we can imagine. So let's think about what John meant when he said, This, the first sign Jesus did at the wedding. John goes on to tell us that the miracle was designed to reveal Jesus' glory. In other words, the miracle was designed to show that uh, God's life-giving, joyful presence is to be found in Jesus. It's to show that God's presence isn't about keeping rules and regulations. God's presence is about joy, fulfillment, celebration, transformation. And not just in a measly, grudging way, but in a way that overflows. And the disciples responded to that, we're told, by believing in Jesus Now, at this point, that's not a full-blown faith because they don't know all that Jesus is going to do. But John tells us that they responded to this miracle by believing in Jesus. Their eyes were opened to see his glory. After all, the servants saw what they did, but they didn't look behind the miracle to see Jesus' glory, whereas the disciples both saw the miracle and saw Jesus' glory behind it. And they responded to that by believing in Jesus. But what about us? What is our response? Was this just a miracle that happened thousands of years ago that's no point for us today? I don't think it is. Because this miracle was designed to show us uh, that Jesus is full of glory, that he's powerful, that he comes to bring us abundance of life. But that miracle couldn't have happened without Mary's persistence, 
It couldn't have happened without the servants doing what Jesus told them to do. And without the disciples actually seeing Jesus' glory behind the miracle, it would have been nothing more than a miracle. So this shows us that to benefit from that abundant life, to benefit from that overflowing of grace and love, we need to respond to it. We need to look for the signs of God's transforming love in the ordinary things of our lives today. So as we think of all that Jesus did, we think about after his death, when he met Thomas, he said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now there Jesus is talking about us. Because we haven't actually physically seen all the things that he did. We haven't seen that wedding at Cana, and yet we believe in him. And so as we think of his abundant love today, as we think of the way that this wine just overflowed, let's pray that today we will see that love overflowing in us and through us. And this week, let's be on the lookout for that love transforming us and transforming what we do as we pray about our weeks ahead.